We are, church, in the midst of this discussion centered around Isaiah 40, verse 31, where Isaiah is writing to those who will be in the Babylonian captivity, and he talks about the blessing of God that comes to people who wait upon the Lord, which means to look to the Lord with expectation and hope and belief. And here is the radical statement, the promise, Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I, I step back and say, well, how, how does that happen? Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. How does that happen? They shall run, not grow weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And I've suggested to you the last few weeks that it is when we give ourselves to the habits of grace, which means there are certain things we embrace and we do that put us on the path where Jesus is walking so that God in his providence and kindness can touch us and empower us as we wait upon him. And I've mentioned, I'm just going to deal with four. There's many more than four. But first of all was the authority of the Scripture and thinking about the Bible. Let the Bible dwell in us richly and meditate on it and being people of the book. And and the second thing was the importance of Christian friendship, having friends that really encourage us and build us and help us think through the contours of life. And then there's this mindset that is called stewardship that I addressed last week and this week, and then the rhythms of the Holy Spirit. But, but today, again, the issue of stewardship. And a steward is, is someone who, is a, who manages entrusted resources. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you've been gifted with spiritual gifts, but also with resources, and we are to honor God with the totality of our being. And so if, if we're to call forth the power of God in our lives as we wait upon him, we have the mindset of being some people who are stewards of the good gifts of God. So I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians this week. Last week it was in, I was in 2 Corinthians. But in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is talking about two builders. It's a very basic text. I've got the very basic three points but, but the, the two builders are different believers or groups of believers who built with different materials. And he starts off in this chapter by saying in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I wish I could address you as spiritual people, but I can't because you're people of the flesh. You're infants in Christ. I, I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And he says that there's strife and jealousy, and it's centered around the fact that they were lining up behind super teachers of their day. One guy was named Apollos, who was a great preacher. Another guy was named Cephas or Peter. The Apostle Peter. Some people said, no, I follow Paul. And, and, and the Apostle Paul says, you know, when you line up behind certain preachers and what they say, instead of concentrating on Christ, you're showing that you're still in the flesh or you're, 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 you're fleshly. And then he gives this incredible illustration, starting in chapter 3, verse 10. And I'll read through verse 15. 
according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on and the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. This is God's Word. Hear me. This represents people who are believers in Jesus. Paul says with great clarity, the man who builds with wood, hay, and straw, the man, the woman, the group that builds with wood, hay, and straw, he says they will escape though only through a fire. But there's another group that builds with gold, silver, and costly stones. And their house on the day of judgment will stand strong. Please know this. You will never ever, believer in Jesus, because of the shed blood of Christ, you will never ever 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 be judged for your sin. But we saw last week, this week, you will give an account for your faithfulness as a steward of the mercy of Christ. Never judge for your sin, ever, never, never, ever, never. But we will give an account for being good stewards. And, and, and so, as I look at this, two groups, wood, hay, and straw, house burned on the day of judgment, they escape through the flames, gold, silver, costly stones, house stands, they hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So, so my issue is, how can you live in such a fashion that you continually build with gold, silver, and costly stones? And I'm going to give you three points. Three points. Number one, to build with gold, silver, and costly stones, hear this. The foundation of Christ must always be supreme. It must always be that which is before us. Uh, the foundation must be supreme. Paul says in verse 10, once again, according to the grace of Christ, of God, given to me, I like a skilled master builder, I lay the foundation and someone else is building on it. Someone else is building on it. So the, the foundation must be supreme. That's why in chapter 2, he says, when I came to you, I preached Christ and him crucified. I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Then verse 7 says this, But we impart a secret and hidden 
wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. There is a secret wisdom that God has eternally planned, and it is the wisdom of the cross. So that's what Paul is saying he is about. We have a situation in the back, so let's... let's, uh, We have several physicians attending to someone in the back, so let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we don't know the situation that's going on right now, but we know that you are the physician and the great healer, and you're the shepherd. So we commit this unto you in Jesus' name, and we bless your name. Amen. Okay. So the first point is that we build with... Uh, Understand the foundation is only that which is in Christ. That must be supreme. There's a statement in the worship guide from a book called The Screwtape Letters by a man named C.S. Lewis, and it's, it's the encouragement from a senior demon to a junior demon. And it's here, and let me read it to you. It says this. The real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we demons want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and... Cyclical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, this is 1942, Christianity and spelling reform, if they must be Christians, then make them, let them be Christians at least with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring, work on their horror of the same old thing. I think that's an incredible statement in this regard. The devil wants a Christianity and movement. If, if he can get us centered off of the cross and, and make us people who are Christianity and. I, I put a statement in here in the worship guide and it says this. It is inevitable that, the, if, that if the add-ons, the add-ons will become the focus of our attention unless we constantly return to the glory and wonder of the cross and the substitution of Jesus for our sins. It's inevitable that this is going to happen. So, I understand this. We're not going to be judged for our sins, but judged for our faithfulness. And if we're to be faithful, we major on the reality of Christ and his death upon the cross for our sins. The devil wants a Christianity and. I am uh, passionately committed to the sanctity of human life. I believe the protection of innocent life is, is the ethical issue of our day. By far and away. Boom. But it is 
easy to become so committed to a good thing that we talk about that and talk about that and talk about that, and the gospel becomes a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less. Fight against that. There's no foundation other than Christ and Him crucified. Whatever you're committed to, there are very good things, biblically speaking, whether it's, whether it's Christian education, whether it's racial reconciliation, whatever it is, it's easy for those things to become higher and higher, and we minimize the, the gospel of grace. We have to be people who understand that. Glory in the cross. If you're listening to this in a few months, um, today is February the 9th, 2020. We just went through an impeachment process. And in this impeachment process, the Senate just voted to acquit President Reagan. And in the aftermath of this acquittal, one of President, excuse me, President Trump. <laughs> Maybe that was wish fulfillment, I don't know. President Trump. In the aftermath of this acquittal, one of the president's uh, people wrote, the president was totally acquitted. And I read that and I thought, maybe totally acquitted means something different than it does to me. I mean, the score is 50, the, the score, the, the vote was 53 to 40, 47 or 52 to 48, whichever count you look at. That, that, that is not total acquittal. No. Total acquittal is 100 to nothing. That's total acquittal. And let me tell you, the good news is that when you stand at the bar of judgment before the living King, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus did on the cross for your sins, it's one million to nothing. You are acquitted. But done. Therefore, glory in the cross. If you're to build with gold, silver, and costly stones, glory in the greatness of Christ. Another thing I read this week, two weeks ago. A very well-known athlete was killed in an accident with his daughter and eight other people. And then in the aftermath of that this week, a high school principal from the state of Washington wrote the following. Not going to lie, seems to me that karma finally caught up with him, close quote. And she was dismissed, and she should have been. What a horrible statement. And, and yet, karma, if when you think about karma, if you're a Buddhist or you're Hindu, Karma is what you experience in the next movement, next what we call transmigration of the soul, when you come back in a higher life form or a lower life form as far as your privilege and position in life. So, so if, if you live well, well, well now, in the next rotation of life, you come back more privileged, more talented, more wealthy, whatever. She was using karma and a West Coast kind of mentality that says that you're going to get in life what you've done, you're going to reap what you sow in this life, that's karma. But really, every world religion teaches karma except the faith of Jesus. If you believe in the, the, the religion called Islam, Islamic people believe that in the sky there is this great scale, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and you do them usually in the name of Allah, maybe you get into heaven. Maybe you get into Islamic heaven, but you never know. It's all about works. Listen, the good news, there is no karma in Jesus. Everything you needed has been fulfilled on the cross by your substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's why I say, I look at this and I say, 
I, I need to glory in the gospel of Christ. If I'm going to be able to go silver and costly stones, I preach the gospel to myself because my heart is spring-loaded to do something, to say, I've got to do something. I've got to do some work. I need to sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Now, give an example, and I'm sorry to give this example kind of sort of, but it drives home a point because I'm kind of sort of maybe the hero of the story, so forgive me. Years ago, years ago, I mean years ago, there was something called the Christian Coalition. It's a political movement with a lot of people involved, and it's good, good, good people, and we have some people in our church who are involved in the, the, the Christian Coalition. And so they, they asked me several times to go to these meetings, and I said, well, I'll wait. And then they, one day they said, we're having a really nice lunch, you know, catered lunch. Can you come? And I said, I'll, I'll be there because free food's a good thing. So I was going to the Christian Coalition. So we went. I went with them, dear, dear people, dear, sweet people. And so there's a big banner over the stage that said Christian Coalition. And the speaker that day was a thoughtful, gracious, kind well-spoken man from San Francisco who was the rabbi of a, a Jewish synagogue. He wore his little hat and he spoke and did a, a great job. I, I even read one of his books before that. I knew who he was. So we were leaving and, and, and they, they say, they said to me, well, what do you think? I said, listen, he was phenomenal. If he ran for, for nationwide office, I could easily vote for him any day of the week. Great. Do you want to join the Christian coalition? I said, No. They said, why? I said, here's the issue. They said, Christian coalition. And you had a wonderful, well-spoken man who was Jewish. I applaud that. But he does not believe that the blood of Christ covers his sin. He doesn't believe that Jesus is Messiah and King. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe that. And, and to say Christian coalition and sit there and embrace, I, I, I can't do that. Because that, to me, minimizes the power and the grace of the gospel. If I'm at a, a pro-life rally and I'm standing there with people that are Unitarians and Jehovah Witnesses and, and Mormons and all types of non-believers, and somebody pulls out a banner and says, Christians for life, I, I can't be there. But because they're not Christians. I mean, one of the great spokesmen for the pro-life movement was a guy named Bernard Nathanson, who became pro-life as a physician after being uh, an abortionist, and he was still an atheist until years later when he came to faith in Jesus. You see, guard the gospel of grace. Guard what the gospel says. Foundation number two, verse 11 or verse 10. He says, let each of one of you take care how he builds upon it. Be very careful. Be very careful. Take care. When your child leaves home, whether they're going to go for a one-hour ride or they're going to college or they're going to get married, what do you say to them as parents? You say to them, be careful. And I just say, brothers and sisters, as we live life, if we're going to be able to go silver and costly stones, we are people who are just careful. We're careful. Again, Lewis says this. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows that he's not very good. 
a thoroughly bad man thinks that he's all right. And in the same chapter, this is what he says. Let me just read part of it to you. He says, I would say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices and all your lifelong, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures. Each of us at every moment is progressing to the one state or to the other. What Lewis is saying is this, is that every moment, every day, we're making decisions and giving our heart to inclinations and passions and pulls that either are making us into someone who reflects the reality of Jesus or pushes us from the light. And so I, I, I say to, to you, be careful, be careful. Paul just says, he says, be, be, be careful in the way you live. Be, be careful in the way you handle the things of God. Just, just be very careful. I think one of my sins is that I assume things, and when I assume things, I don't live with thanksgiving, and, and I become someone who is neglectful. The familiar becomes something I assume, and I become neglectful, and I'm not thankful. Example, I assume the kindness and the affection of my wife. And every day, and this is Valentine's Day week, okay, Friday night, Friday. Every, every day when my wife is faithful and kind to me, it is a gift from God. I assume the kindness of my children. And they are kind. And yet, if I just assume that, when they do something nice or they speak to me well, or they, I, I can just be neglectful. I assume the friendship and the brother and sisterhood of my church family. So, so, so part of being careful is, is being careful about what we think about, where we go. Jesus says, in John 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he says this, that the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye. If your eyes are sound, your whole body will be flooded with light. But if your eyesight is bad, you're flooded with darkness. What do you, what do you, it's not an ophthalmological statement. What he's saying there is that, is that if our affections and our passions and what we look at is honoring to the Lord and it builds us up, our body will be flooded with light. But, but, but if not, there's darkness. So be careful. I was struck recently reading Galatians. Of, of, of Paul, Paul is pleading, be careful. Paul, who believed that God does a great work and brings it to completion, is writing to this church, these churches in southern Galatia, who were beset with, with, with believing that Jesus is okay, but you really got to do fast days and feast days and circumcision and this. And so, and so Jesus became less and less and less, and the, 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 the demands became more and more and more until the gospel is just eclipsed. And Paul writes this incredible letter, but he says in chapter, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I, I came to the apostles and I put it before them so that to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. He says, be careful. 
I, I could be someone who's run in vain. Or chapter 4, starting in verse 8, he says, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's, the, the rules. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? It's just incredulous. It says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Did you hear that? You're observing this and this and this and this and this and this, and they're eclipsing the gospel of Christ, and I'm concerned that I have labored over you in vain. So I just, I read this and I say to you and me, be careful. Be careful. And then the third point is this. There's a, there's a great day coming. The scripture says here that, that, that a, a great day is coming. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Quite frankly, there are people here who have built with wood, hay, and straw. You're believers. Others have built with gold, silver, and costly stones. Westminster Confession of Faith in your bulletin, or your worship guide says this, is Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there will be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversities. So he will have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Our, our great day is coming. And let me say this, brothers and sisters, we will be surprised. Go back to the problem in Corinth. They were lined up behind these well-known speakers or preachers or teachers and there are people that we esteem today and we care for today and we listen to different things by them and some of them are great people, but, uh, but there are other people that you probably drop your kids off at the nursery or that helps you park your car or that will work in the homeless shelter or will be here all day Tuesday and Wednesday cooking barbecue for the wild game banquet who in reality are generals in the army of the living God. And when we get to heaven, we are going to be surprised. So here's a story I'd love to tell. There was a little boy born 1875. He was privileged in that his dad was incredibly wealthy. His dad was earmarked to be the prime minister of England. His mother was an amazingly gorgeous woman from Missouri. And they were married and they had two boys. And this young man was the eldest of the two. But his father, because of addiction to alcohol and drugs, never achieved the status that he was supposed to achieve. And his father was really ashamed of this son because the son was born too much premature. The son had trouble developing physically and the son had trouble speaking. And so the father dismissed the son, sent him to boarding school. 
And many times the father would go to this boarding school that was hundreds of miles from where the boy was, was born, and he would do business because he had a huge business there in the city. And the bank that he worked with was, was across the street from the, where the boy went to boarding school, and he never went across the street to touch the boy and say, I'm here, have a good day. Never. Never. His mother used her beauty to seduce many men. She had lover after lover after lover after lover. So into this boy's catastrophic existence stepped an old woman named Mrs. Elizabeth Ann Everest. Never married, didn't have a family. And she became the governess, the nanny to these two boys. And she could have just kind of planed out and showed up and done nothing and done the right thing, but not really poured her life, but she poured her life into these boys, and, and she would teach this older boy, and talk to him a love for nature, and love for creation, and she talked to him about the things of Christ. I'm not sure it ever took, but she talked to him. And she was an outstanding woman, and unheard of. And she built into this little boy a, a sense of, of destiny and a historical framework. And, and this, this, I just recently read this in a book, in one of the books I've read about this guy. So this little, little boy, he's 16 now. He's 16, 1891, 16, 23 years before World War I. And, and, he, and he says this, he says, um, he writes to a friend. He's 16 years old. Listen to this. He says, I, I can see vast changes coming over a now peaceful world. Great upheavals, terrible struggles, wars such as one cannot imagine. And I tell you, London will be in danger. London will be attacked, and I shall be very prominent in the defense of London. He's 16. I see into the future, and the country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion. By what means, I do not know. But I tell you, I shall be in command of the defenses of London, and I shall save London and England from disaster and dreams of the future are blurred, but the main objective is clear. I repeat, London will be in danger, and in the high position I shall occupy, I, it will fall to me to save the capital and to save the empire. He's 16. <laughs> this woman died when this man was 20 years of age. And for the rest of his adult life, which lasted until... 1965, this man did not keep a picture of his father or his mother on his desk, but he kept a picture of Mrs. Everest. And the last letter she wrote to him as a 20-year-old, he was at a military academy, and she said, be a good gentleman, upright, honest, just, kind, and altogether lovely. How I love you, be good for my sake, close quote. And this boy that she poured her life into is named Winston Churchill. If those of you that don't, don't know history, Winston Churchill basically in a small island nation called England stood alone for two years against the Nazis and the Japanese fascists and the Italian fascists because of an iron will guy named Winston Spencer Churchill. You say, that is a cool story. That's a cool story. And you're also saying, probably... There's not a Churchill in our family today. Probably not. But you don't know. Let me go one step further. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that when you feed the hungry and you clothe those with no clothes, 
and you visit people in hospital and in prison, and you care for those around you, that when you do it to the least of these, our brothers and sisters, you do it as unto him. Now, I don't, I don't get that, but I do know this, that when I care and serve and build with gold, silver, and costly stones in the name of Jesus, touch people, I am mystically touching the reality of Jesus. So this is even better than Churchill. You are ministering to the reality of Jesus. So, so when, I, when I get the mindset of a steward, life takes on dignity. Well, without the concept of being a, a steward and the day of judgment coming and a God who's gifted me, it's just another plotting. February the 9th, 2020, round and round and round you go. In fact, the second view of history is that it's just a cyclical nothingness going nowhere. The concept of history from the Scripture is this an unfolding of a gracious plan from a triune God who's using us to build His kingdom. And so I say, build a foundation, be careful, and live this day in light of that day. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, for the the scripture, we thank you for this dear brother who was uh, helped by health professionals, even as we worshiped. We pray you bless him. Watch over him. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a desire to be careful in the way we live and to live with a high calling and sobriety in Jesus' name. Amen.